Hello and welcome to the IMB podcast brought to you by the communication cell and student media cell of IIM Bangalore. The new podcast series aims to become a platform to discuss the latest business, economic, management and social issues that matter. The podcast will witness IIM Bangalore fraternity including but not limited to the faculty members, students and alumni providing their insights and perspectives to the topics and issues that surround us. The world is battling an invisible enemy after 100 years. We have not seen anything close to the current COVID crisis in the recent memory. For months, billions of human beings across the planet were in lockdown, pent up in their homes to reduce the spread of the virus. Yet today, we have more than 80 lakh cases worldwide and more than 4 lakh plus fatalities. The virus has also induced an unprecedented economic shock worse than the 2008 crisis. Closer home, we have infection, migrant crisis and an economic slowdown. Here we are with Professor Pratik Raj of IIM Bangalore to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and various issues surrounding the COVID-19. Professor Raj is an assistant professor in the strategy area and the IMB Young Faculty Research Chair. So welcome Professor Raj for the IMB podcast. Hi. So let me start with a very broad opening question for you, Professor. I want to ask you, what is the impact of the pandemic on the Indian economy? You know, for example, what challenges do you foresee? What kind of slowdown do you foresee? What kind of recovery perhaps will happen? Because this is a completely new situation for all of us and an unprecedented one. And we have no ready framework to deal with it. So um, it's a very broad question that you've asked me. Uh, so first of all, something to keep in mind is that uh, an economic disruption of this kind has not happened in ages. And I don't think since the Great Depression of the 1929, something at this scale ever happened. Um, we obviously experienced the Great Recession of 2007-8, but that too seems smaller in size in comparison to what we are seeing right now. Now, if you want to really think of what would be the effects of this particular disruption in lives of people, uh, you can go back and look at what happened after 1929 when the Great Depression happened. Um, and the bottom line is that a lot of things can be speculated, but these would be speculations because we are just in an uncharted territory where everything at a global level is being disrupted. So how will things pan out depends on a range of things which goes even beyond economics. So think of the Great uh, Depression. Now the Great Depression also gave the rise to Hitler, it also gave rise to the New Deal in the United States, it led to a realignment of countries, etc, etc. So international politics, um, local politics, how are different groups of people internally going to react to sudden uh, difficulties that they are going to face? Are they going to move towards more democracy? Are they going to move towards less democracy? All these questions are up in the air and we don't really know how these things will pan out. So the honest answer is that it's very hard to predict. So think of the question that we are talking a lot about these days is that, well, India should take this opportunity to 
get a lot of manufacturing sector to move to this country. And that, that seems like a great plan per se, but it's going to depend on a range of things which is beyond our control. For example, how are international alliances between countries going to shape up after um, the pandemic? How much of a negative impact is China going to face? How much of boycott is China going to have? These are questions we don't know an answer to. And all that will impact how India's policy would be affected. So the bottom line is that we are in an uncertain situation where the best we can do is keep our, our, our eyes and ears open and essentially use this opportunity to create some um, resources and capabilities that are necessary for, you know, having full use of whatever opportunity comes our way. That's right, Professor. In fact, as you say, we do believe that the world is in for a big reset, something perhaps what the Great Depression did. Our focus for this episode is primarily India. And when it comes to India, there's a common saying that there are a lot of Indias within India. It is a country of enormous diversity and one-size-fits-all approach cannot be followed in this country. How do you see the COVID impact playing out regionally? And what kind of opportunities does that bring? So, um, my own sense uh, on India's regional economy, given that over the last one year, we have collected a lot of data on a wide range of parameters across India, on economy, on health, on uh, gender relations, caste relations, etc., etc. And the broader sense that I have got is that southern India and western India um, they are already probably in a virtuous cycle of growth, which means that there are economic clusters where businesses are coming, entrepreneurship is happening, where you have uh, decent levels of investment in education, in other public goods, where gender relationships are relatively more egalitarian. Um, even you know, inter-community relationships tend to be better. So I said, the sense I get is that the southern region and the western region are in a good situation fundamentally to take on any challenges that is going to come its way. And, and uh, not to be controversial, but I think that as long as just governments let these uh, regions grow by themselves and provide some support uh, to those who are the most vulnerable as long as you know a little bit of a facilitator role is played uh, by the government not too much of intervention into whatever virtuous cycle that this region is in the better so essentially one way to put it is that probably governments don't need to worry too much about that region and because people are already worrying enough so People will take care of it. That's true for um, South and West India. But when it comes to, and I would say to some extent, even Punjab, etc., are doing relatively decently uh, overall. But then comes the Hindi heartland and also the Northeastern India. And the story over there is entirely different. If you think about this region, the only big city in this region is Calcutta. And Calcutta was not just a big Indian city at a certain point in time. 
Calcutta was an international city in around 1900 or so. And from there, it has slowly deteriorated over time. So in this big giant region with, I don't know, um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, uh, 500 million only in UP, Bihar, Jharkhand, MP and Chhattisgarh, the problems are very different. And my sense is that we are in a, a vicious kind of cycle in this particular region where cities and economic clusters don't exist. People don't have that many opportunities for social mobility. Old traditional ways of doing things continue to persist because there is no incentive to change the ways anyway. Um, the, willing, the, the incentive to even go to school is not there. And this is something I often like to talk about that why should a child go to school if the final outcome is to become a driver? And that is the kind of uh, challenges that the region over there is facing. So, for example, one very alarming data is that the dropout rates today for children in the fifth grade is still very high in the region at 15, 20, 30 percent in various districts. This is not the case for South India. So we are talking about um, 10, 11, 12 year old kids who drop out of school. And if that is the situation, there is a lot of cause for pessimism. And quite often what happens is that when we talk about the economy um, in a traditional setting where there are consultants or macroeconomists, they would talk at a very broad level. And quite often the economy that they're talking about tends to be the economy of Bombay or Delhi or um, Bangalore, etc., because that's where most of the economic output is. But uh, if you are, if economists and social scientists are doctors, the patients that they need to really give attention to right now is basically the patient in the Hindi heartland and the Northeast uh, India. And over there, uh, you need very targeted efforts um, to ensure that proper cluster development can happen, proper investments, he heavy investments in healthcare and education can happen. So the economic package that is needed for that region is just um, different from the kind of economic package that you need in uh, other parts of the country. Amazing. Uh, uh, professor, uh, you know, uh, this is a very nice insight for all of us. You know, uh, let me come to a big issue that we saw, uh, you know, on our TVs, on our uh, social media feeds. You know, we saw a lot of migrants, you know, walking back. You know, we saw a trend of reverse migration from these clusters that you talk about, the southerns and the western states, which are in a virtuous cycle. And, you know, all these migrants came back to the northern and perhaps to the eastern lands of India. Uh, do you see this reverse migration will play out in a big way for the Indian economy because, you know, the industries will be short of workers, uh, at least in the short run that we see. Uh, how, how do you see the impact in the short, medium and long run uh, with this reverse migration? So the migrant crisis is definitely a very bad sign uh, because it is a sign of the fact that they have been basically ignored by society. Um, so people don't make these long journeys if they are not desperate. And when you are in such level of desperation that you're walking 
hundreds and thousands of kilometers to reach your hometown, you are also carrying with you this notion that I was completely left out. And anyway, whenever somebody migrates, there is a cost that they pay of leaving their family behind, leaving their social ties behind and going to an entirely different and new city in hope that opportunities that they will get in that place would compensate for the isolation or difficulties that they will face socially, emotionally, etc. Now, when you have something like the lockdown, where very little amount of actual help was uh, reaching to them, the cost uh, that now the people will pay to get back to the cities after having gone back to their homes has gone a lot more up because along with all the baggage that, oh, my family lives here, my friends live here, why not go to a nearby city, etc. Uh, there's this additional baggage that we were really vulnerable in that city and nobody really came for our help either. So it is a cause of potentially large concern for all the cities um, that were not already the cities where uh, these migrants were native to. So Bombay, um, Karnataka, etc. They they need to worry about how will they will re be restarting the 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 urban economy again. But given that, it's also an opportunity for serious reform and thinking. Because ultimately, why was it so that the migrants were ignored? And the reason is that. People took them for floating labor. If these people won't work, those people will work. So there was probably too much of labor. And they said, let's pay them minimal amount. Let's not provide them with any support system at all. And they will still keep on coming. So to some extent, it is also a wake up call for uh, not only uh, employers, but also consumers that they need to become aware that they are receiving a lot of services in this economy at the cost of very lowly paid migrants. Um, and they may have to readjust their expectations and think and understand, look, you know, a migrant is offering me a service and I need to pay for the service at an appropriate amount. And this is from the consumer side and from the side of, of the uh, employer, the, the same thing holds that I need to provide them with a basic set of security. So the same crisis is also an opportunity for sweeping changes in the social support system that urban areas uh, can provide. So what has basically happened is that there was already a problem and the crisis exposed it. So it's not so that the crisis was a very bad thing to happen per se. It's just that having this crisis uh, been there, now we can go back and fix the problem that has already existed for a very long time. Professor, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of experts have been talking about this reverse migration as an opportunity for Hindi Artland. You yourself argue in an article that this is an opportunity for the Hindi Artland to, you know, really develop the economy uh, and develop a virtuous cycle. Uh, but uh, do you not see a logistical supply chain challenge? You know, the Western and the Southern states are very well connected internationally. 
which is why the products that you can produce, uh, the infrastructure that you have there, you know, but they can provide global services. They can provide services that can be exported. The uh, the supply chain challenge remains a roadblock when it comes to the northern and the eastern states. How do you see that playing out, and you know, how can the policy address that issue? The entire Hindi heartland, the Gangetic Belt, it was literally at the heart of the global economy. in medieval india in the medieval times um so trade routes have existed historically for the region uh for a long time in fact the problem in many ways bangalore is far more remote than patna or allahabad from in a historical sense because the gangetic uh, uh, the the ganga river has been a major route of international trade for a long time so from a historical perspective this idea that oh you know this this region is so remote doesn't really hold that much of water that's first thing the second thing is yes there are no ports but it is not as if that places without ports cannot develop what you need is proper infrastructure support you need uh, fast highways you need fast trains and these are challenges actually that uh, for example railway expansion is a very difficult complex issue uh, more so in the region uh, now one of the things that some economists do emphasize is simplification of land reforms that unless we make land acquisition simplified it doesn't mean that you remove all the regulation and support and rights for the land holders and you can allow for just forced acquisition of land but simplification of uh, land acquisition is going to go a long way in building the road linkages the rail linkages that are needed for the region uh, i think some work is already being done these infrastructure called industrial corridors that are being built um, is very important uh but much of the focus of that in in you know the industrial corridor has been between bombay and delhi when i think for the from the perspective of urgency an important link is between calcutta and uh delhi which is the gangetic plain and to some extent guwahati to calcutta so these infrastructure highways need to be built and if you can build them then there is no uh, it's not that big of a problem okay uh, uh professor you know you talk about the land reforms and you know we have been hearing about the labor reforms enacted by some states to so that they can you know turn this crisis uh, into an opportunity for the state to attract investment industries and other things uh but there has been a criticism to the labor reforms that have happened mm-hmm. so the question is you know are we really solving the problem or we are just barking up the wrong tree when it comes to labor reforms and the other reforms that are happening uh, in the wake of this crisis so uh, my own interactions with uh, many people in the government has made me think that quite a lot of times the government thinks departmentally that this department so it's like you are a doctor and you have to solve somebody's problem and you say i'm going to solve the liver problem the other person is going to solve the heart problem the third person is going to solve the eye problem when the issue cannot be solved that way so if in case you want uh, you need it's not about whether labor law should be strong or weak 
land acquisition should be strong or weak should it be uh, environmental law should be very liberal or very very uh, uh, highly regulated the first thing is that you need to have a coherent vision of how are we going to go about this and there could be potentially different ways of going about the same development and that particular developmental approach may require different types of uh, reforms so what one kind of reform may work in one setting but it may not work in another setting so for example think of kerala which has a very different kind of a growth model altogether in comparison to a state like gujarat and their outcomes are also very different in terms of what they achieve um, so one model can get faster uh, industrialization the other kind of model can get uh, what is it a, a more uh, equal equitable human development kind of approach and it's to some extent a philosophical question of what approach is ideal uh, for different settings and one can debate that and discuss that but um, you first have a broader vision and then you say for achieving that vision what do i need to do now this question of whether um, industrial um, uh, reform especially in terms of uh, labor law reform should happen or not uh, definitely uh, a lot of people highlight that the labor laws in this country are very complicated there is a lot of bureaucracy in this country so simplification of it is something that nobody to my knowledge um, is having a debate on but the question is and this becomes very important is how much and of what should we remove every protections that workers should have or should we leave something and quite often these details matter a lot and which is why it requires a more vision based you know a long uh, project based approach rather than an announcement based approach that oh today we simplified the laws of the labor tomorrow we simplified the uh, the land laws because some of them should be there and some some of them should not be there so professor you know uh, uh, you have really uh, enlightened us on this uh, you know migration and the opportunities and these laws uh, there is one more debate going on in this country you know uh, the opportunity of you know china slipping in and india becoming the uh, bright spot in asia uh, but uh, you know when we see data for last uh, few years a lot of companies that have moved out of china have moved into vietnam and not india uh, do you think the red tapeism and other uh, challenges that india has uh, is a big uh, you know roadblock and does china slipping if it slips is an opportunity for india so even if china did not slip there were still a lot of opportunities for india let's first keep that in mind simply because if china is growing fast it also needs new demand and services right and indians can provide to chinese people so this notion that china slipping is the opportunity of india and had china not slipped india would not have had opportunities that's not really true because that holds a certain kind of a bias that all the demand is going to come from western countries and uh, eastern countries are basically providers of those demands and services that are emerging in the west and that's a pretty strange view uh, and it's not realistic view given that uh, 
China in itself is a major source of demand today. And being a major source of demand, India can provide China with new opportunities as well. So first of all, I personally am not someone who is really into this China versus India, which should one person's loss is another person's gain, because the overall idea in trade is that everybody, it's a win-win, it should be a win-win situation for everyone. Now, the second question is, whosoever wants to move to and from anywhere to anywhere, uh, they obviously want a set of um, things for them. The bigger problem is not red tape per se. The bigger problem is uncertainty that people find when they do business in a country where governments change constantly, re regulations change constantly. Today you have one set of do way of doing things, tomorrow you have another set of doing things. That is the uncertainty which often deters people from entering a country like India. They think, well, you know, 30 years down the line, how can I anticipate how will I be doing in India, uh, business in India? Because I am not sure what would be the uh, paradigm under which this country would be working. So more important than red tapeism and non-red tapeism is clarity of laws, clarity of regulation, that this is the environmental regulation. This is the principle that you want to follow in environmental regulation. This is the principle you want to follow in labor uh, laws. This is the principle you want to follow in um, land acquisition, etc., etc. If there is clarity on what is the broader principle, what is the broader system that we are applying, the question of how much red tape we have is something that can be navigated because uh, companies can accordingly adjust themselves that, okay, this is the, what they need, I can make my decisions accordingly. But if it's constantly changing, it creates a problem. So that's one issue. But a broader issue that for some reason doesn't come up often is that the average human development of India, literacy, uh, skills, uh, is lower than what is for China and for other East Asian countries for that matter. And unless we focus on human development, unless we have those 20-30% children that are dropping out of school right now in India, in especially in northern parts, unless that stops, you are not going to get uh, people moving to this country because there's this wrong understanding that companies just want cheap labor and well, if labor is so uh, unskillful, then, you know, the, the, kind, the kind of industries that you're going to set out of that are not going to be extremely, uh, you know, lucrative industries. You want to attract, for example, smartphone companies, right? So one of the things that people talk is that Apple is now apparently making iPhone SE in India, which is amazing. But most probably it's doing that in a southern state because people's skill sets are better in the region. So a big challenge in this country is that we are not investing enough in healthcare. We are not investing enough in education. And quite often people think, oh, all this is just, you know, abstract talk. Let's talk about bridges and infrastructure and land reforms and uh, labor reforms for uh, the country to uh, grow. And I don't know why is that kind of conversation more prevalent. And why don't we talk about how many schools we have? Because it is the schools and then the um, 
voluntary training systems, uh, institutions and so forth, ITIs, uh, engineering colleges, etc., that play an important role in building the human capital that will then build the country. So a greater conversation on how are we going to equip people with necessary uh, skills is very important, especially more so today because Today, technology changes so fast that you cannot rely on a 30-year-old curriculum to, um, to empower people. You have to constantly train them. So we have to improve systems of training in this country. Um, so for me, it is uncertainty of policy and a lack of emphasis on human development that becomes a major hindrance of why very high-quality companies would not set up shop in India. Let me uh, shift to the last part or the last theme of the podcast where we, you know, we want to analyze the economic stimulus that the government announced. Uh, you have written on it uh, as a blog for I am Bangalore. Uh, you know, uh, government has come out and announced a 10% of the GDP, you know, as a fiscal stimulus or as an economic stimulus uh, to deal with the pandemic and convert this into an opportunity. How do you assess the economic stimulus package? Will it do really, uh, will it be beneficial for the country or it is still falling short of what the situation demands? So um, there are two parts of it. First is short term support that government provides to um, the the poor and those who are vulnerable, vulnerable businesses, vulnerable households. Second thing is uh, long-term measures and reforms that the government takes. Um, the government has taken some important steps in terms of providing, for example, uh, a, quite a lot of uh, a large package on uh, grains and uh, LPGs, etc. So uh, that is a very useful. Um, short-term measure to help a lot of people. Obviously, there are a lot of leakages in the system um, which um, have to be ironed out, uh, but even in short term, it's hard to iron them out too. So the government has been doing uh, that. But uh, my sense has always been 10 years. One of the big achievements of this country has been essentially strengthening of its digital infrastructure in a manner that is more uh, is better than expected. I mean, one could have thought that India would have been a laggard in mobile technology and digital infrastructure and so forth, but it is still at the forefront in various ways. Uh, and we have an Aadhaar system now. We have uh, bank accounts to for eighty percent of the people, uh, according to one survey. We have. Uh, internet. With these three things together, I always thought that this was an opportunity to really focus on that and to make sure that the last mile, last person connection, so that then people can be connected and provided emergency help and support through cash transfers if necessary, could have been done. And that is the disappointing part that uh, we could have done, been a bit more bold in revamping our social security system, emergency support systems, because we already had the necessary infrastructure in place. One of the things that my senses stopped this from happening was that people thought, well, you know, if we give cash transfers to people, how will we know whether cash transfer is reaching the right person or not? And my sense has always been that you shouldn't 
worry that much about corruption and leakage in a time of crisis and just go and be a little generous because thankfully this country is not in such a dire situation anymore that we cannot um, afford to have any leakages at all in the system because just for the sake of making sure that one wrong person doesn't get the uh, money you are probably uh, make leaving out 10 people who should be getting the money immediately so that's the short term measure in the long term measure to be honest um, while we were in the lockdown we were in the middle of the pandemic which is still continuing uh, my own focus was less on the uh, long term measures but just today i was uh, thinking of the fact that there are, there have been some proposals at least from the government for example to provide social security uh, a system to pro of providing social security to uh, migrants um, there is uh, an expansion of manrega scheme uh, that's the other thing um, there are new programs for modernizing a lot of industries, fisheries and uh, horticulture, etc. So there are a set of programs that have been proposed, which are good and nice. Uh, but in the long run, once again, we cannot go about these long term solutions through one announcement at a time. We need to first have a vision of what kind of country we should be. For example, this phrase Atmanirbhar Bharat. So there has been a lot of conversation about what does it mean. Does it mean that we would be locally sufficient in our production, and uh, or or does it also mean that we will be exporting a lot from uh, 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 exporting a lot to other countries? But as a direct result of it, it often also means that we will be open to importing a lot from other countries. So. It is a beautiful phrase, Atmanir Bharat, very much like uh, Swadeshi, uh, once upon a time in 1905 and six when that word was coined, self-reliance movement. But in the modern context, where on one hand we want to be a country which attracts businesses from China, and on the other hand we want to be locally sufficient, um, there is some sort of a dichotomy that do we want to be full participants in the globalized economy? Or do we want to be self-sufficient? And a little bit more clarity on that front, and then necessary steps needed in, in reaching to that particular goal is very important, where no one person can do it. I mean, it has to be a coordinated effort of central and state governments together. We often, so when, for example, when we are talking about there needs to be uh, a clarity and a vision, I'm not talking about central government only. It is also the state governments. It is also the local re cluster economic regions. All of them are important stakeholders into the story. And each one has to chart their own course of what we want to do going ahead and then basically act upon it. Um, but the first step has to, instead of saying, should labor reform be like this, land reform be, uh, should be like that, should we provide cash transfers this way, should we have environmental, environmental regulation that way, instead of focusing things in that manner, first thing you want to focus on is, okay, what kind of an economy do I want for myself? Those questions need to be first clear, so that then uh, there's a clarity broadly of, okay, how are we going to approach uh, uh, many of these uh, problems that we have. 
you're absolutely right, Professor. You know, uh, once someone told me that you know, if you want to uh, become a powerful super economy, whatever you want to become, you at least need to know what you want to become. You have to chart out a long term plan. And I think the government needs to come out with a vision and you know a clarity on that before you can actually make a path towards achieving that. Uh, we are coming to the end of the podcast, but and you know a lot of business school students and aspirants would be watching this podcast. Uh, the COVID crisis has induced a lot of permanent changes uh, uh, in the behavior of consumers, in the behavior of you know uh, of our office spaces, in the way we work. So what kind of opportunities do you see fading away from the landscape right now? What new opportunities do you see for businesses in the coming times? Because there's a lot of uncertainty for the business school students and the graduates and the aspirants as well. And if you can give a perspective on that. So, you know, it's very hard to tell, but I can just tell that when I was uh, graduating in my undergrad, uh, we were in a similar kind of situation where we had been just out of the aftermath of the financial crisis. So in that particular year, um, jobs faded, uh, even in the top universities uh, and engineering colleges. And uh, I don't, I, I, to be very truthful and harsh in some sense, it can have long-term consequences in, um, in lives of people because you are essentially starting out at a rough patch. But at the same time, one of the things that I noted was that a lot of startups emerged in India after the financial crisis too. So the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem became quite vibrant in India. Is it because of the financial crisis or not? That's a different question. But um, definitely the timing was very interesting that after 2010, 11, we, a lot of good companies emerged over time. So um, the best answer to this question would be that you have to keep your eyes and ears open and be realistic. Don't be optimistic or pessimistic about the future. Just be realistic and don't cling to the fact that, oh, I wanted so-and-so for myself. This is the path that I had chosen for myself and that path is not being realized anymore because that is going to happen because we don't live in the very same economy uh, as we used to in 2019 it's a different economy it's a different world because of coronavirus and the best strategy in that is to be realistic is to keep your eyes and ears open and to not be very um, unwilling to change your track to change your uh, approach in life and approach your of what industry you want to be a part of in what uh, kind of jobs you want to do, whether or not you want to start a business, be open to newer things. But at the same time, I think nothing helps more in a crisis than being um, skillful. If you have, are having skills, then it is going to really help you. It's not very surprising uh, to know that. But um, have investing in your own skills, um, whatever it is in front of you, is really important uh, because that is the only thing that is with you that is not going to change with the crisis. The internal capabilities that you have are yours, 
and then you have to be develop an ability to respond and react to whatever external uh, complications and difficulties the world throws at you because uh, the reality is that we live in a very uncertain time and uh, no prediction at all would be wise or uh, good to do because there is no prediction you can do about how things will pan out it depends on f a lot of things it depends on our individual choices it depends on the economic path we take it depends on what happens in china and the relationship between china and america there are a lot of things that are going to decide how are going things going to pan out in the next 5 years for example think of uh, the right now the standoff we have in uh, between china and india now is it something to do with the pandemic is it not who knows but who was expecting that you know 6 months ago that we will be in such a situation where there have been um, such a uh, you know very serious clashes happened between the two countries so uh, we are having racial uh, uh, tensions flaring up in the united states so it's a time of very it's a very exceptional time and the best thing you can do in an exceptional time is to keep your eyes and ears open and to keep on practicing and improving your own skills in whatever be that that is really useful advice uh, we definitely live in a vuka world uh, as we call it thanks a lot professor for your time and it was a really wonderful session with you uh, thanks a lot yash so that's it from imb podcast episode today I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Do send in your comments, feedback and suggestions and we will be happy to hear them or read them. Have a great day.